0: Lord, you have promised uh, that one day your glory will cover this earth. It's not here yet, Lord, but because of the crucifixion of your son that gave way to the resurrection, which then gave way to the ascension, which then gave way to your son, Lord, sitting at your right hand with all authority in heaven and earth. And that will one day give way to his return to gather us home as your people, which will in turn give way, Lord, to our experience of you for eternity. And at your right hand, there are pleasures forevermore, and there won't be one moment of eternity where you will not continue to unfold uh, just breathtaking glory to us and show yourself to us. So we thank you, Lord, for your plan, which is already underway and will come to fruition. We thank you, Lord, for all the promises that we have in Christ. And we pray now, Lord, as we open your word together, uh, that your spirit would nudge, prompt, speak, challenge all the things that are your pleasure to do. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So over the past two weeks, of course, if you've, or a few weeks, I guess, not just two, um, if you have been with us, we have been slowly uh, meditating on the, apostles, the Apostle Peter's sermon in Acts chapter two. And hopefully as we've gone through this already, we have noticed that the two major themes or the two major strands of Peter's sermon are, namely the pouring out of the spirit at Pentecost and the resurrection of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. The pouring out of the Spirit and the resurrection. Well, as Peter now brings his sermon to a close, he ties together these two strands, ties them together. And then following that, Peter will issue to his listeners a specific word of application, which is what good preachers do. They give application of the word. Well, the last verse that we looked at in our time last Sunday was Acts 2, verse 32. If you have a Bible, we encourage you to open it, even though we have the verses on screen. There's something about having a Bible in front of us that is blessed, so please open your Bible. Acts 2, 32, Peter there simply declared the resurrection. He says in that verse that God raised Jesus from the dead, miracle of miracles, glory of glories, hallelujah, raised Jesus from the dead, and that he and the other apostles were all witnesses to the resurrection. And so it's very clear that verse 32 is about the resurrection. As a result of the resurrection, the living Jesus then ascended to the right hand of the Father, there to sit at the Father's right hand in his position of supreme authority over heaven and earth. And it's the ascension of Jesus to the right hand of the Father that Peter now turns to in verse 33. He says, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, so in other words, the resurrection of Jesus brought about his ascending and being seated at the right hand of God, all in fulfillment of Psalm 110 verse one, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. So notice, friends, very carefully, how the apostle Peter ties together those two major strands of his sermon, resurrection and the pouring out of the Spirit. He's saying here that Jesus was resurrected and then as the living Christ, he ascended on high to the right hand of the Father And from that exalted position, the risen Jesus has poured out his spirit there on his people at Pentecost. And this pouring out of the spirit that Peter's listeners have just witnessed as Peter preaches this sermon, this pouring out of the spirit that all of these people have been so astonished at as they've witnessed it, so perplexed by, we remember the language, all of this is evidence right before their eyes that Jesus of Nazareth is indeed the Messiah. He is indeed, because it's the risen Jesus, ascended on high after his death and resurrection, who is now pouring out the Spirit. As Brian Vickers puts it, I think so well, quote, what Peter's audience witnessed at Pentecost was the result of the enthronement, the result of the enthronement of King Jesus, which was possible only because he defeated death. Amen? And this pouring out of the Spirit by the risen, ascended Jesus, isn't this just exactly what Jesus said would happen? Before he ever went to the cross to be crucified, Jesus promised to send the Spirit. Yes, he did. He said to his disciples in John 15, 26, that he would be sending the Helper sending the spirit of truth to his disciples and then again in John 16:7 he told his disciples that indeed he was going away from them and it was necessary for him to go away from them so that the helper the spirit of god would come to them and jesus said at the end of that verse John 16:7 he said i will send him to you i will send him to you that is i will send the helper the spirit to you well isn't this precisely what happened at pentecost in acts chapter 2 he poured out the spirit on his people he fulfilled the promise that he had made the risen ascended jesus poured out the spirit in such measure that a lot of the people witnessing this thought that the people who received the Spirit were inebriated, drunk. The Pentecost pouring out of the Holy Spirit by the risen, ascended Jesus is described beautifully in Ephesians 4, verse 7. When he ascended on high, He led a host of captives, and Paul here is quoting Psalm 68. He led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Yes, indeed, our Lord Jesus Christ led sin, death, and the devil captive as he rose from the dead and as he ascended on high and from his exalted position, at the right hand of the Father, Jesus gave gifts. He poured out the gift of the Spirit at Pentecost for one thing. And Peter, as he preaches this sermon in Acts 2, is preaching, we have to note, he's preaching as a beneficiary of this gift, right? Peter is freshly filled with the Holy Spirit here, Peter's words are being empowered by the Holy Spirit. The the Spirit is enabling Peter mightily as Peter is preaching salvation in Jesus Christ. Well, as we move forward now into verses 34 and 35, Peter quotes Psalm 110 verse one again. Psalm 110 is one of the favorite Psalms for the New Testament authors to be quoting. They quote it all over the place. So, so far in his sermon, we've already seen Peter use Joel chapter 2 and Psalm 16. Now it's Psalm 110, verse one. He says, for David, now David pops up again, for David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, and he quotes Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Now, last Sunday, we heard Peter argue, if we remember, we heard him argue that Psalm 16 could not have been about David, even though David wrote the psalm. But since David had ended up, like the rest of us will one day end up, buried, his body decayed, it meant that David did not fit the description of Psalm 1610, which is actually, we said, and we made clear hopefully last week, Psalm 1610 is actually about who? Jesus. Well, similarly now, here in verses 34 and 35, Peter says that even though David wrote Psalm 110, verse 1, which is about somebody ascending to heaven, to God's right hand, that someone could not have been David himself, because, as Peter says here, and everybody knows, David did not ascend into the heavens. But yet David wrote about someone who would ascend to the right hand of the Father, and that person, of course, is none other than Jesus. David wrote in Psalm 110, the Lord, that is, Yahweh, Yahweh said to my Lord, interesting, that is, Yahweh said to David's Lord, Yahweh said to the greater than David, Yahweh said to the Lord Jesus Christ, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Friends, Psalm 110 verse one is about God the Father talking to his son, beckoning his royal son to ascend to the right hand of the Father. After the Son of God was crucified, after the Son of God was raised from the dead, the Father beckoned him, sit at my right hand. Jesus ascended in his victory over death, to the right hand of the Father, there to sit with authority, there to give gifts to his people. And now, the final and total and lasting defeat of his enemies is being brought to pass. Right now, it is being brought to pass, amen? My friend, your whole life, and my whole life is wrapped up in what God has done and what he is doing in Jesus. In the crucifixion, resurrection, ascension, and return of Jesus Christ. Each and every one of us, no matter who we are, no matter if we are believers or unbelievers, Each and every one of us is an actor in the cosmic drama that God is unfolding in his universe. It is that way no matter if we embrace it or not. That's the way it is. Peter finishes his sermon then in Acts 2.36, the final word of this very first sermon in the Christian era is this. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Back when we were looking at verse 23, we talked about the boldness of Peter as he preached, saying to his listeners, you crucified and killed the one God sent. Well, now Peter just is at it again. He does it again here at the close of his sermon. He reiterates to his listeners that they, he gets very pointed, that they crucified the one whom God established and God designated as Lord and Messiah. They said their violent no to the one upon whom was God's yes. They murdered their own Messiah. Which is the point that Peter, filled with the Spirit of God, makes crystal clear here. They murdered their Messiah who had been sent by God. And this fact brings Peter's listeners from the condition of astonishment and perplexity that they'd been in because of the phenomenon of the spirits outpouring, it brings them from that astonishment now to a condition of abject terror. There is a realization here that is brought home to them in a most powerful way that they are guilty of killing God's Messiah. But now, that Messiah was alive and at the right hand of the Father and his enemies were being dealt with and were being defeated. And so the listeners hear this and and, and how could they not, they think, how, how can we not be his enemies if we killed him? How could we not be the targets of God's severe judgment if we have murdered God's chosen sent Messiah? You see, it wasn't just it wasn't just that they'd killed another prophet like Israel of old had done repeatedly throughout their history. No, they had killed the Christ. As Ben Witherington puts it, Peter's listeners, he says, had done something no Jew would ever want to be credited with, acting in such a way as to lead to the death of the Jewish Messiah, the one who was to deliver Israel. Well, Let's go to verse 37. When they heard this, when they heard Peter's sermon with its stunning conclusion, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. There was, friends, a sharp, fiery pain, a piercing in their hearts. They experienced a, a flood of distress. A palpable uneasiness in their conscience, cut to the heart. And again, wasn't this being cut to the heart? Wasn't this just exactly what Jesus had promised prior to his being crucified? Jesus had said to his disciples in John sixteen eight that when the Spirit was poured out, as he had just been poured out there at Pentecost, when the Spirit was poured out, the Spirit would convict, he'd get right up close, and he would convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. And that's just precisely and exactly what's going on here with Peter's listeners. The freshly poured out Spirit of God is at work now, cutting them to the heart, convicting them of their utter folly. The pain of remorse is falling hard and heavy upon these people and inside of them because the spirit is at work. They say to Peter and to the rest of the apostles now, and I would imagine there's some notable panic in their voices at this point. Brothers, what shall we do What do we do now? Our hope of salvation was with our Messiah and we now know that in the worst sort of stupidity and blindness, we killed our Messiah and our hope of salvation went with him. Oh brothers, what do we do? Please help us. You're 400 miles from shore. The water is 2,000 feet deep. It's cold. Your boat has just sank. And you're alone, treading water. Suddenly, miraculously, a little unmanned lifeboat appears, 50 feet away. And you swim with all the energy you have left vigorously over to that lifeboat and you climb aboard and if not for the lifeboat, surely you would have died. Well friends, the Holy Spirit speaking through Peter gives these people a lifeboat amen their hearts are cut their hearts are broken by the realization that they went ahead and they murdered their own Messiah and now they recognize that they are under terrifying judgment and in breathtaking grace breathtaking grace god says to these same people who had shouted for the blood of jesus to be shed he says to them your hearts cut and broken by your outrageous sin can be mended (laughs) amen verse 38 peter says to his listeners repent and be baptized every one of you. I imagine Peter scanning the crowd as he said, every one of you. There's the lifeboat, friends. (laughs) Grab onto the lifeboat, repent, turn around, in other words, change your direction, make a hard turn with your whole life, Make a hard turn toward God and away from self-sufficiency and self-righteousness and idolatry. Repent and be baptized. Show publicly by entering the water that your faith is in the risen Jesus Christ, who you crucified express publicly by entering the waters of baptism that you yourselves are participants in both the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We notice that Peter says here, notice carefully, be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ, be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. Now, are we to understand from this verse that forgiveness of sins comes by baptism? Thank you, Robert. He's already answered and I'm building up toward the answer here. I don't wanna get into the weeds of the original Greek here, but suffice it to say, and with the work of Greek scholars backing me up here as I studied this this week, We should understand this as be baptized with a view to the forgiveness that is yours in Christ, or be baptized on the basis of the forgiveness that you have already received. Baptism, friends, signifies, signifies the forgiveness of Jesus. It does not produce that forgiveness. It signifies forgiveness. It does not produce forgiveness. But leaving that issue aside, I want you, because I don't want us to get bogged down in that, but I want you to really notice the glory in this passage. Notice the glory with me. Notice the glory. To the bloodthirsty people who had called for Jesus to be executed Roman-style on a cruel cross, crucify him, crucify him. They had shouted God here extends forgiveness do you notice this glory this gospel as John Stott has noted he says eat listen to this it's just remarkable even the sin of rejecting God's Messiah would be forgiven even the sin of rejecting God's Messiah would be forgiven. If that is not astonishing grace, then I don't know what is. I want you to understand the forgiveness of God, my friend. If you you are a person who struggles with this, am I forgiven by God? Can I be forgiven by God? I want you to understand the forgiveness of God and how unexpected it is and how great it is. And to help you understand, I want you to listen carefully to this excellent little description of God's forgiveness from a writer named Leander Keck. He says this, What is the forgiveness announced by the gospel? Is it like when we announce our human, frail, limited forgiveness? What is the forgiveness announced by the gospel? It is the news that God has dealt effectively with those barriers which our failures have erected. It is the news that God does not wait in sublime patience until we achieve a minimum moral character, but that he refuses to allow our continued bankruptcy to stand between himself and us. (laughs) Hallelujah. That's wonderful news, is it not? I love those last couple of lines. God refuses to allow our continued bankruptcy, and we do, we have continued bankruptcy spiritually, morally, He, he refuses to allow our continued bankruptcy to stand between himself and us. He comes and he searches and he seeks for the lost amen hallelujah and all praise to him repent and be baptized every one of you in the name above all names the name of the crucified resurrected ascended and soon coming Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Yes, indeed, the risen, ascended Christ still pours out the Spirit to those who believe. Verse 39, for the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off blessed news, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Notice that Peter says, in effect, that the promise of Christ's forgiveness and the pouring out of the Spirit is for both the Jewish person and for the Gentile, people like you and I. The Gentiles are described here as those who are far off, So salvation is for jews and for gentiles like you and i and notice also friends very carefully who does salvation belong to psalm 3 8 salvation belongs to the lord peter says that forgiveness in christ and the promise of the spirit are given to everyone whom the lord our god calls to himself the lord is the good shepherd who seeks and saves the lost. The Lord is the one who calls strays to himself and they are saved. And I wonder, my friend, is he calling you this morning to be saved? Do you sense his calling? Verse 40 now, Now here Luke the narrator breaks in to the story. He comments on Peter. Luke says, and with many other words Peter bore witness and continued to exhort them saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. Now I I agree with Brian Vickers here when he says that save yourselves means, save yourselves by doing what? By flying to Christ for the salvation that you need. Be saved from this crooked generation. People in every time period, including 2021, people in every time period need God to save them from the crookedness and from the devilish rebellion that exists in our own hearts and that exists all around us. Without salvation in Jesus Christ, each and every one of us is liable to God's judgment. You need to know that. Now, when I was a kid, we would go to the lake during the summertime. I used to love going to the lake, Calling Lake in Alberta, go out there every summer. And one of the things that we enjoyed doing as kids was trying to catch minnows with what's called a seine net. A seine net is a large rectangular net. It's got weights on the bottom of it, two sturdy poles on either side you have one person on each side of the net and you slowly, where there are minnows, you slowly walk through the water and then encircle and hopefully catch a good catch of minnows. And we used to love catching minnows, put them in a big pail and just watch them for a while and then we would dump them back into the lake where they could live another day. It's always fun. (laughs) Peter, in his sermon, has essentially done what? He's taken his net and he has encircled his hearers. Remember how Jesus had once instructed Peter to drop his net down into the deep? And begrudgingly, Peter had done it only to have his net burst with fish. Remember that story? Right after that happened, Jesus said this to Peter, From now on, you will be catching men. Remember that? Well, watch how Peter's nets are bursting again. In the final verse of our passage, Acts 2, verse 41, Peter has drawn the net in his preaching. And now Luke reports that those who received Peter's word were baptized, they went into the water, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. 3,000 people. The nets are bursting again. Amen. And this has come courtesy of the risen Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit who have been at work through Peter's sermon. Peter is the one, remember, Peter is the one, oh, Peter. Peter's the one who had denied Jesus three times and had gone out and wept bitterly because of his failure. But the risen Jesus, in his grace, forgave Peter in the same way that Peter's preaching forgiveness here. The Lord, he knew it firsthand. The Lord Jesus Christ had forgiven, restored him. And now in Acts chapter two, the risen Jesus is smiling and he's giving Peter a great catch of people. The early church swells in numbers here. The Lord is working mightily. Amen? Friends, you know the story of the Hebrew people crossing on the dry ground of the Red Sea while the Egyptians were in hot pursuit of them. That's a story of God's people leaving behind slavery and going toward their new life in God. The Hebrew people were leaving behind a dark shackled life and they were venturing on that dry seabed toward a new life in the Lord in the Promised Land. And in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 2, the Apostle Paul calls that passage, listen, he calls that passage through the sea a baptism. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 2. Isn't that fascinating? The journey of the Hebrew people through the Red Sea was a baptism. Paul says that the Hebrew people were baptized into Moses as they passed through the Red Sea. Which does make sense, because baptism signifies that we have left behind the old life, the shackled life, the life of slavery to sin, death, and the devil, We go under the water to signify death to the old life and we rise up out of the water to signify our new forgiven life in Jesus Christ. As Christians, we are not baptized into Moses like the Hebrew people were. We are baptized into the greater than Moses, the one who who leads a new and greater exodus Jesus Christ. And so, my friend, I ask you as we close now, I'm asking you earnestly and sincerely, have you turned from your Egypt? Are you part of the new Exodus? Have you turned toward God and away from the sin that enslaved you? Have you repented, to use Peter's terms in his sermon and and have you entered the water of baptism have you had your red sea experience Are you staking the whole of your life, the whole of your life, staking your life on the crucified, risen, ascended, and soon coming King Jesus, who has all authority in heaven and on earth and who promises to give you life abundant? With Peter, I simply exhort you today, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ with a view to the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And I close with a relevant, brief, spiritual commercial here, which is to say that we are always happy at Snowden Baptist Church to run baptism courses and to baptize people. And so if the Lord is nudging you pushing you, prompting you to be baptized, please don't hesitate to talk to me today or to one of our deacons, amen? Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we have come under your word this morning and the authority of it. We have heard Peter preach in the power of the Holy Spirit about the risen, ascended Jesus who pours out the Holy Spirit on his people and the call to repent and be baptized. And Lord, I pray that if there is someone either with us here today or listening online, either live this morning or after the fact that is not yet a a disciple of yours, a follower of yours, that Spirit, you would so work on that person that they would surrender and come under your authority and receive you and be forgiven. This is my prayer and we pray, Lord, now for your presence, risen Jesus, at the communion table. Amen.